We're going to continue today with our study of this present time. We have a subgroup in the series of this present time, and uh, it's about works. Now, we have been a strong uh, teaching church of the fact that we are not saved by works. The Bible makes it clear, for by grace are you saved um, through faith, not of works. But in that same passage, it does tell us that works have a place. We are created both initially and reborn in the image of Christ in order to have good works that would be to the glory and honor of God. So we began, we're trying to do three things. A few weeks ago, uh, and then Pastor Corey preached, and then the Lord interrupted our plans last week. But a few weeks ago, we talked about works, why works are important. Uh, just because we believe that works don't get us to heaven, that doesn't mean that works don't have a place. Works follow us to heaven. They don't get us there, but they follow us there. And we talked about three reasons, uh, really four, why works are important, even though they don't save us. So we talked about the importance of works. Today, as we talk about the judgment seat of Christ, we want to talk about the evaluation of our works. This is one of a handful of messages that, uh, five or six messages that I feel is so important that I, that I preach it or some variation of it uh, about once a year. I want to keep that before you. I've, I have talked about the judgment seat of Christ probably two dozen times through the years, and I want to talk about it today because the judgment seat of Christ, we know now why works are important, but the judgment seat of Christ shows us how God will judge our works, how he does the evaluation. Now, next week, we're going to talk about what the rewards may look like. And uh, we're going to use as a starting point the crowns that he says will be awarded and who they will be awarded to. I don't think the crowns are the full reward of God. I mean, we will see him. We will be like him. We will be eternally with those who have gone before. Oh, I, I, don't, think, I don't think the five crowns can contain all of the reward of going to heaven. But I think the five crowns do kind of teach us a little bit, if I may be th of this world, I think the five crowns may teach us a little bit on whatever level about the love languages of God. I think we will see what God cites and, and considers very important when it comes to rewarding. Now, today I want two things to happen with the help of the Lord. Um, I believe that today, as we talk about the judgment seat of Christ, we are going to talk about clarification. Um, my prayer is that we will never see life again the same after today. This is not a part of the sermon, what I'm about to say right now, but it has been very real in my heart. God is beginning today. In fact, with some, he's already begun but God, and, and it sounds too good to be true, but God is using today to break off sorrow, to break off shame, and, and he is breaking off sadness. 
Now that doesn't mean there won't be sadness or sorrow or shame at any time in our lives, but it's been defining too many of us for too long. And in the last three years, especially as society has gone through this strange journey, we have found ourselves, as we talked about uh, last week, we have found ourselves shackled by things that never shackled us before. We have found ourselves unable to break out of things that have never held us in bondage before. And one of the things that God is doing is he's teaching us the nature and the characteristics of this present time so that we can live for the coming time. And I, I want you to, I don't, I, I want to pray for you. I'll, I'll do a 30 second prayer. I don't know what it's going to look like. It may be in the altar. It may be in your personal devotion. It may be in a talk around the family table, but if you have been bound by sadness, look for that shadow to begin to lift and don't feel guilty if it begins to lift. Uh, if, if you have been bound by sorrow, understand that it's normal and it's all right. It's healthy to grieve. But just remember, God never intended that we grieve as those who have no hope. So understand that as God brings clarification to the idea of the judgment seat, he's going to moderate or modify your sorrow. He's going to put it in proper perspective. You know, the first time that I didn't cry over something that happened in my life, every time I, I thought about it uh, to any degree at all, I found myself crying. Um, I, when I went to the cemetery, I would cry. And the first time I went and didn't cry, I thought I was becoming hard-hearted. I thought I was becoming insensitive. I thought I didn't care anymore. But you know what I found out? I found out that God gave me time to grieve and then God began to change that grief into an anticipation for the future. So your sadness is going to begin to lift like a shadow, uh, like a fog rolling away. Your sorrow is, is going to begin to be moderated or mitigated. In other words, you don't have to give up love for the thing lost that brought that has brought sorrow but God says we're going to put it in a different category and we need to understand that in our walk for holiness sometimes our quest for holiness just produces shame and we can't believe we did what we did we can't believe we lived like we lived can't believe we made the mistake that we made but God is saying there's no shame anymore. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And loved ones, God has paid in full for our sin and our failure, and we're not honoring him. It's not holiness to walk in prison garb anymore. Because it's not that God just said, oh, forget about it. Don't worry about it. No, sin is a very, very serious matter and God is not on the throne drinking Pepsi and eating potato chips saying, oh, don't worry about it. It's nothing. I, I've forgotten about it. No, God looks at us and says, your sin is great. Your sin is treason against the creator of the universe, but your debt has been paid in full 
There's no condemnation. That's what the word means. The Greek word is katakrima, no judgment against you anymore. It doesn't mean that, you know, it's just forgotten. It means that it has been paid for. And you need to stop thinking that somehow you're on an installment plan with your shame. I got to suffer a little bit every year. And then one day I will have paid up and I can go to heaven. No, loved ones, you've already passed from death into life. And what we want to do today is to have some clarification of how we ought to live in this present time. And the second thing that I want to happen is we want to make some good choices today. We want to make some good choices. No, I haven't forgot the Lord's Prayer. We're going to come to that in just a moment. But I think about Hebrews 11. And the Bible says that Moses made a choice. It says that Moses chose spirit over flesh. He chose suffering over earthly glory. He chose to suffer with the people of God than to enjoy the prestige of Egypt that he was entitled to. Why? Because he considered that the treasures of Egypt were not worthy to be compared to what God was doing in his people. Now, we're not even talking about heaven. He chose his people to join them in their journey now because he knew that it's better to be a pilgrim in the will of God than to be a prince in the service of the enemy. He made a choice. The Bible says of Jesus that he chose to go to the cross. It was his choice. He, could have, he said he could have called angels to rescue him, but he made a choice to endure the cross, though he despised the shame of it, because he knew the joy that would be his afterwards. And loved ones, let me tell you, that joy is you. That joy is me. Jesus made a choice. So when we begin to understand the judgment seat of Christ, um, it brings some clarification as to why some things don't seem right now. It brings some clarification to why some people and some churches have disappointed you. Some of you hold a grudge against God because he hasn't dealt with things to your satisfaction. But if you'll begin to live with the judgment seat in view, you'll begin to understand that his ways are higher than our ways. And, and it doesn't just mean that he's a little bit smarter. It means that they are of a different uh, uh, reality altogether. He doesn't think the way we do, but praise God, he understands the way we think and he relates to us, but God is good and everything he does is good. And that's what the Psalms say. It's hard to remember that sometimes, but we, he will give us clarification and he will help us make the right choice. Now with that in mind, as we start looking at the judgment seat of Christ, let's uh, go through our prayer time that we believe bonds our heart together. Let's pray as the master taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. 
Amen. And now, Lord, my 30-second prayer, I pray that sorrow and sadness and shame, the foundations and the grip of it would be broken and that you will begin, I know you've already begun it with some, but continue with them and begin a work in us that sets us free from these chains of the enemy. Let us find a new atmosphere of the grace of God. In your name we pray. There's some scriptures that help us understand the nature of the judgment seat of Christ. But before I read those scriptures, I want to paint a picture for you. I've done this before because as I said, I preach this or something like it about every year, about once a year. Um, and the idea of the judgment seat of Christ, it's a different word than the great white throne. I know people uh, growing up, I remember people that I thought were just great saints of God and they, and they were, don't misunderstand me, but they'd say, pray that I'll be faithful as I appear before the great white throne judgment. And later, as I began to study the scripture, I thought, no, 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 no. We don't want to appear before the great white throne. That's a place where unrepented of sin is judged. That's a place where the lost are brought to account and, uh, and their lives are judged before God. We don't want to, we don't want to be at the great white throne judgment unless, unless we're an audience. We don't want to be a part of that. But every one of us will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's the word bima. And from that word bima, there's a, there's a picture that we understand pretty well in our culture. You know, when you go to the Olympics or, or you watch the Olympics, um, there is an award ceremony right after the event is completed in which three people or three teams, whatever, stand on three levels of award. It's not you won, you lost, and you lost. It's a celebration of victory, different levels of victory, but it's a celebration of victory. Bema will be a place of clarification, but it's also going to be a place of reward. On the top level, the person stands who finished first. They wear a gold medal. Then one level down is a person that finished second. They wear a silver medal. And then one step down further is the person that finished third. They're all considered winners. You, you never say they lost and got the silver medal. They lost and got the bronze medal. No, they won the gold. They won the silver. They won the bronze. But the rewards were not equal. The medals were made of decreasing valued medals. But all of them are celebrated. And that's going to be the judgment seat of Christ. There will be correction there. We know that. We're going to read that in just a moment. But it's going to be a place of celebration. Loved ones, God wants to say, well done, good and faithful servant. If he gave you five talents, that's great. If he gave you three talents, that's great. If he gave you one talent, that's great. That's where the analogy breaks down. We're not in competition with each other. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But the issue is how well did we serve the Lord? Some of us have a lot of talents. We were talking about a pastor this morning that, uh, that uh, just seems to be able to fill in everywhere and do everything. And he was called the Swiss Army Knife Pastor you know, because he can do just about anything. I thought about it and I said, what would I be? And um, I thought, well, I'm the dull butter knife pastor probably. Uh, but, but some of us are dull butter knives, but we get the job done. 
we're, we're called on to get the butter spread. You know, others of us are multi-talented. Others of us are for fighting. We're different. But even though we are different, God wants to reward all of us. The goal for every child of God ought to be hearing the Lord Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. He will never say to me, Stephen, you didn't do as good as Mike, but you did all right, you know. Um, Mike will be judged separate from me, separate from Rachel, separate from anyone else. Uh, we are uh, we're not in competition with anyone at this judgment seat, but it's a matter of how well did we do the will of God. Listen to how this theme is introduced to the Christians in the first generation. Paul is talking to the Romans and he says, why do you treat each other this way? Uh, our, our modern day might say, why do you post the stuff that you post on Facebook? Why, why do you say the things that you say? Why do you make the accusations that you say? He said, why do you judge your brother? Are you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? He said, why would you do that if you understand that we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of God? He says, you would not treat each other the way you treat each other if you understood you have to give account for this. You know, I, I've, I've, through the years, I've, I'm amazed at Christians that say, well, I just had to say that. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. Somebody told you a lie and you swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. You don't have to say everything. Then somebody says, well, I, you thought it, you might as well say it. Oh, that's, that's not only wrong, that's anti-biblical. Uh, the, the book of Proverbs says, uh, you know, put a, put a knife to your throat if you don't have your appetites under control, your tongue under control, he says, you don't have to act on everything. So um, Paul said, listen, if you think you just have to do it, if you think you have to get vengeance, understand you're going to face this day and the decision you make right now at the judgment seat of Christ. Now he said in 2 Corinthians, so we are always confident, even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not at home with the Lord, for we live by believing and not by seeing. Yes, we are fully confident and would rather be away from these earthly bodies, for then we will be at home with the Lord. He says, but whether we are here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please him. He said, our goal is to please him. Why do we want to please him? For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whether, uh, whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. Now there's some theologians that think that uh, Paul is saying, well, the good will have the, the great white throne. I mean, uh, the judgment seat, the bad will have the great white throne. But he's talking to Christians. And when he says we will be judged uh, for the good or evil that we do, he, he's not, the, the, this is not a comparison of righteous acts and evil acts, sinful acts. It's a comparison of things done with purity and things done uh, with, with a, a mixture, so to speak. Um, you know, pure gold means there's nothing mixed with it. But when something gets mixed with it, it still has value, but it's not the way it was intended to be. So we're not going to carry our sin to the judgment seat of Christ. It is already dealt with by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and our acceptance of him. But we are going to give account for the quality of our actions or our deeds. You say, well, I don't, that doesn't matter. Just what matters is what you do. Well, let me ask you this. Had you rather have a wife that is faithful to you because she loves you? Or had you rather have a wife that's faithful to you because she doesn't want to get caught? I mean, that's a big difference. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, would have, I would have said, no, I would have said to my wife, sweetie, you don't have to do this. We, we, we don't have to do this. When she walked down the aisle, if her dad had a chain around her, dragging her down there, and her saying, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this, you know, I could have, you know, I could have said, well, you have to, you've already said yes, can't take it back. You, no, my heart would have been broken if she had to be dragged or talked into coming down the aisle. Uh, I, remember, I remember one time um, we had a wedding that was about 15 or 20 minutes late. I didn't know why. One of the, one of the family members had gotten delayed and they were, they were late. And I remember uh, standing over in the green room saying, I need, I need to talk to her. I need to talk to her. If she's having this kind of hesitation... Because all they told me is she won't go down the aisle. They didn't tell me why. And I said, I need to talk to her because if she has this kind of hesitation, she doesn't want to go through with this. We need to at least put this off a few days. And then I found out it was just somebody was late. But you know what? I'm, what I'm saying is nobody, nobody wants to come into fellowship with someone who has to be forced we want to come because of love. And um, he says our goal is to please him and we're going to receive reward for how we lived our life. You might just put it this way. You'll be rewarded for how well you live the will of God for your life. Okay. Now in 1 Corinthians, he puts it this way. He said, brethren, I could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to carnal or men of the flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not able, for you are still fleshly, still carnal. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly or carnal? And are you not walking like mere men? When one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of, of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. He said, I may have planted, and Apollos may have watered, but it's always God that gives the increase. It causes the growth. So neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. In other words, they're both just servants. But each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And he's saying that we all may be working for the same thing, but everybody has a different labor and they will receive their reward based on how well they did their labor. Not compared, but how well they did their labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which I was given, or which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's where we all start. 
It all starts with Jesus. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father by me. We all have the same foundation, okay? But then we build on the foundation. If any man builds on the foundation, he builds with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, straw. Each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. It doesn't mean he loses his salvation, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. Let me read that from the Living Translation. It'll bring a little bit more clarity to us. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials. Gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like somebody barely escaping through a wall of flames. Now, God is not trying to say that there will be princes and paupers in heaven. He's not trying to say that some of you will just barely be saved. That's not what he's trying to say. That's the, anytime Paul makes an analogy, the analogy can break down at some point. But the point he is trying to say is that the way we live our life will determine if we have a spiritual legacy or not. If it'll determine our level of reward in heaven. Now, let me lay down a couple other foundational stones and then we'll kind of pick up speed as we go through. Uh, I know there's a teaching today that says all judgment was taken care of at the cross. There are teachers today that in an attempt to make Jesus gracious say we never have any judgment that we go through. We never have any um, correction that we go through. They say conviction is basically a tool of the enemy. And they say that we never even really need to repent because our sins are forgiven past, present, and future. When we accepted Jesus, all our sins were dealt with. And so we don't have to repent. But we need to understand that we will spend all of our lives up to eternity in some form of judgment. Um, God will still convict us of our sin. God will still tell us to repent and apologize. You say, well, if God did it forever, why do we need to do that? Because that's heaven's perspective. In heaven, there is no time. In heaven, everything is at once. Everything is present, but not here on earth. Not here on earth. Here on earth, Jesus said things like, if you offend your brother, don't even continue with worship. You know, put a hold on your worship till you go to your brother and make it right. If someone does wrong to you and you have to have some kind of restitution, do it the right way. Go to the one that offended you. And if that doesn't work, go with a witness. And if that doesn't work, go to the church elders. He says, there are things that need to be set right. 
There are things that, you know, he says to husbands, dwell with your wives according to wisdom, according to knowledge. In other words, he says, don't, and then he says, parents, don't exasperate your children. And he tells the children to honor and obey their parents. Loved ones, there is still a life full of correction. We call it chastisement. And when you read Hebrews, what you find out is that the writer of Hebrews says, if you don't believe in chastisement and if you are never chastised, my suggestion to you is go back to church and decide if you've re really even been saved at all. He says, because if you never receive correction, uh, the old King James puts it this way, you're not a son, you're a bastard. You're, you're, you're claiming something that you don't have. He says, because the ones that the Lord loves, he will correct. Now, what does that correction look like? Well, the first judgment we will ever face is as a sinner. This is in your notes. Um, when I was lost and away from Jesus, I was viewed by God as a sinner. So I appeal to the cross. I am hopelessly undone. I am helplessly guilty. Even my righteousness, even the good side of me was nothing more than filthy rags. All we like sheep have gone astray and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. I remember the night I gave my heart to Jesus. They were singing that song, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me and that you bid me come to thee. O Lamb of God, I come and I came to the altar. I gave my life to Jesus and he washed my sins away. And that judgment for sin left me and went to Jesus. See, God looked at me and said, your sins that are many are now washed away because they've been paid in full by the death of Jesus on the cross. But that's where we start. God judges me first as a sinner. But as I live the Christian life, he deals with me as a son or a child. I mean, I know the original scriptures usually opted for masculine, but it meant men and women, I mean, a son or a daughter. So now God no longer views me as a sinner. You say, well, what if you sin? He still doesn't view me as a sinner. He views me as a son that needs his butt whipped. <laughs> I am subject to chastisement. He will correct me. He will convict me. He will say, you owe an apology. He will say, I don't want you living that way. We know, we know that the Bible says, let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Don't do this and do this. Don't go there, but go there. There is a life to live, but he doesn't condemn us to hell. I grew up being afraid that every time a pretty girl walked in front of me, I was in, dam in uh, danger of hellfire. Or, or if I slipped and said a bad word, I, I, I just prayed that Jesus didn't come till I could get to church. But I had to learn, yes, those things matter. I need to have pure thoughts. I need to have pure speech. 
I need to do the right things. But I am living in the light of the gospel. And this is what the scripture says. If we live in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. It's a katharidze. It's a present active participle. It means that as I walk with God, I'm not perfect. I'm not going to be free from mistakes. But no sooner do I take a step than the, than the blood of Jesus washes me. I'm his son and he will correct me. He will chastise me. So I used to be a sinner, but he doesn't treat me like a sinner anymore. I am his son. So that means he corrects me. And sometimes it seems that that's all he does. But he corrects me. Why? Because it's proof that I'm his it's proof that I'm his son. I told you this story before. We used to have WMCs, Women's Missionary Council, in the Assemblies of God back in the, I think, 40s and 50s and 60s. And my mom was faithful to WMCs, which meant the bad part of that was that meant every Wednesday morning in the summer, me and my buddies had to go to WMCs too. And we weren't interested in women's missionary council, so we couldn't wait till their meeting was over and we could play. And I remember one time we were just playing tag or something, running around the church. Now, we were an old Pentecostal church. We were used to people running around in church, but <laughs> this was just a group of kids. And one of my buddies ran by my mom and he said, hey, Sister Chitty. And she said, hey, Terry. Another one passed by. And, hey, Sister Chitty. Hey, Randy, how are you? Well, I thought, well, the old gal's loosened up. I, I'm going to run too. And I ran. And while smiling and talking to the other lady, she reached out and grabbed a handful of my hair right here. And I thought, this woman's living a double standard. It's okay for Randy to run. It's okay for Terry to run. It's okay for David and Danny to run. Why can't I run? And I made my appeal to her as she took me out to uh, administer the justice. And... <laughs> I said, you didn't get mad at Danny. You didn't get mad at Terry. You didn't get mad at Randy. She said, none of them are my son, but you are. And I learned a lesson. I learned a lesson. And that's a good lesson for us to remember as Christians. That's why whenever we look at the world and we think, boy, they, don't, they get away with everything. That's what Asaph said in the 73rd Psalm. I've washed my hands for nothing. And I felt like that at WMCs a lot of times. You know, I've, I've obeyed for nothing. But God wants us to understand that when he chastises us, it's because he loves us and because he has better for us and because he expects us to follow in his footsteps. But the day is coming when I'll no longer be judged as a sinner. I mean, that's already here. But the day is coming when I will no longer be judged as a son with chastisement, at least not in the same way. The day is coming when I will be judged as a servant. I won't appear before God at the Bema as a sinner. I won't even appear purely as a son. It is there I give account as a servant. How did my life of service? I will appear at the Bema in order to have my life evaluated and rewarded. Now, we've got to understand this. It, it, this ought to put sobriety in our hearts, but not fear. Uh, you know, you say, I'm just, God knows enough on me. He could just, he could ruin me. If he wanted to ruin you, you'd already be ruined. If God was out to get you, you'd be a grease spot on old Bush River Road. He wants to reward you, but he wants you to be a vessel of honor. 
This is a place that is an evaluation, a very special time and place concerning a very special group of people. The judge is Jesus. The ones being evaluated are his people. As far as we know, the lost will not be there. We're not sure of the time. Some have said, well, it must be during the tribulation period on earth that we'll have the, the, uh, the great, I mean, I mean the uh, judgment seat of Christ. And then somebody said, no, that's not long enough. That's only seven years. If we have X number of Christians living, that only gives uh, about seven seconds for judgment. That's not enough time for everybody to be judged if they only have seven seconds. They said it must be during the millennial reign. And they did the recalculations. Now we have about two minutes for judgment. But loved ones, we're trying to figure out an eternal event from a cosmic pers- or a, a earthly perspective. And there is no time there. God can do in what to us would be a second that there would seem, if time were there, it would seem like millions of years. It's two totally different realms. Um, I, I, I will say this. Some say that we'll be judged when we die. When we die, we'll, we'll receive um, our judgment and then receive our reward. No, I don't think so because Jesus said, I'm bringing my reward back with me when I come. I get the impression that the judgment seat and the reward is at the end, whatever the end is, because it will be a culmination. Every believer will be there and there are still believers to come. And and it's going to be a time of celebration and recognition and reward. So it's at the end, at least the end of this age. It doesn't matter if you believe it's here, 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 or here. As long as you understand we're going and there's going to be a judgment, that will change the way that you live. Now, as I said, it's known as the Bema. We've talked about that. The que- we're, we're saved. That's not the question at the Bema. The question is what kind of building have we constructed? Now, it's, it's not a matter of, uh, of qual- quantity because John the Baptist by our calculations, he had a ministry that lasted about 18 months. And Jesus said there was none greater that had lived before him than John the Baptist. You would have thought that maybe Methuselah would have the greatest reward because he lived 969 years. But it's not about quantity, although that will enter into judgment. It's about quality. And specifically, I believe quantity matters, but what I want you to understand is this. If God has a plan for every one of us, the question is how closely did we measure up to the plan? How closely did we measure up to the plan? John had a plan for about 18 months and he fulfilled it beautifully. Jesus had a plan of ministry for, we, we know it was at least three and a half years. Could have been longer than that. And by the way, I don't know if you know this, the reason we say three uh, years is th- there were three separate Passovers identified in his ministry. So we know he ministered three years. Could have been a little longer. We just don't know for sure. But what I'm saying is it was a very short period of time. And, and we, we need to understand that it's not how much we do alone, but how well we did what we were called to do. We'll talk a little bit about, uh, more about that in, in just a moment. Um, uh, uh, 
Is our building splendid or shabby? Does your life represent that which fire cannot destroy? Or are we building with materials that will be consumed in just a moment? Now, as we begin to land this plane, I want you to know that we're saved by grace, uh, you know, uh, through faith. I know that. But grace does not mean every believer is the same. Now, grace means that every believer comes to Christ the same way. Grace says whether you're the thief on the cross or you lived a long and godly life full of faith, full of the Holy Ghost, full of good works, you still come to Christ the same way. That's grace. Now, he gives us grace, and grace is I get what I don't deserve. He gives us mercy. That means I don't get what I do deserve. But works are the foundation of our reward in heaven or, or, the, or the foundation of our punishment in hell. You say, well, I thought you, just, you had to do a lot of bad things to go to hell. You go to heaven for one reason, accepting Jesus Christ. That, that's it. That's why, even though I don't want to risk it, I believe in deathbed confessions. I, I celebrate the thief on the cross. Jesus said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. And he not only had few works, he apparently had no works. Um, I, I believe that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I told you one time about a man that nobody, nobody on the pastoral staff wanted to go see because he was, he was a mean man. He was a harsh man. He had threatened to punch the pastors and all kinds of things. And he worked for the power company. And uh, so I was new on the job. I'd been there about two weeks and, and I got assigned to go visit him. Nobody told me about all of this. And, um, and I went and I, on the way there, one of the other staff members who would not go in the room with me said, let me tell you about this guy. And uh, I said, uh, okay. I didn't know, I, I knew that the man had been electrocuted. I mean, he was on a pole and he got electrocuted and he fell to the ground and survived. So I thought I could probably outrun him if I needed to. And I walked into the room and I introduced myself. And with tears, he greeted me and, and welcomed me. And I thought, mm, either, either there's an angel standing behind me that he thinks is a bodyguard or this doesn't sound like the guy that was threatening to punch pastors. And uh, to make a long story short, he was thanking God for saving him. And I looked at his wife like, I even asked him if you are, you know, and he called his name. Yes. And the, the, the lady who was in the choir said, said, Pastor Stephen, you don't, you don't understand. Let him tell you what happened. He said, I was working on the line I hated Jesus, hated the church, hated all of you guys. And when, light, uh, when uh, the electricity hit me, something happened. And my whole life flew in front of me. And I thought, I am a fool. He said, and I said, Jesus, forgive me. He said, I woke up in the hospital singing songs I heard as a little boy. And I thought, here's a man got saved in midair. This is amazing. You know, a man that got saved in midair. Um, 
I believe that God can save us just like that. And last I heard, he, he, he's probably in heaven now. I don't know from his age, but last I heard, he was serving the Lord, working in rangers, doing a great job. A man got saved. Only man I know got saved in midair. In the, well, I take it back. Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector, publican. And then by the time he hit the ground, Jesus was going to his house and he's going to repay everything that he's stolen. I'd say he probably got saved in midair too, coming down from the tree. But the point I'm making is that God can save us and works have nothing to do with it. It's his grace. But he has designed that our works will follow us to heaven and heaven won't be the same for everyone. We will be rewarded according to our works. Now the low spot in heaven is better than the high spot in hell. Why does a person go to hell? For rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. Not, not because they're a murderer or a rapist or a thief. They are a murderer and a rapist and a thief because they've rejected Jesus. See, their punishment is commensurate with their works, but their descent to hell initially is because of a lack of faith. Now, we need to understand that. Now, very quickly, what will the Bema be like when we stand there to receive our reward? What will the, and remember, the purpose of it is to reward us. This is where God wants to say, well done good and faithful service. Remember the parable he told? It doesn't matter if you did, you know, if you've got five talents that you doubled or you got three talents that you doubled. It doesn't matter. He wants to say, well done. But some things take place before that happens. Number one, it is a place of review. We got to hurry, guys. It's a place of review. In other words, clarification. There are going to be some things that might not be clear to anyone around you right now that will become clear then. Uh, the first thing that will be clarified is your attitude. Why did you serve? What was behind your works for the Lord? Do you really have a servant's heart? What attitude marks your servant to the Lord? I remember one time decades ago, I, I was gonna have to fire somebody. They were just trouble and they weren't, they just weren't working out. And somebody, one of the other pastors, I was saying, how do you think I should do this? I don't want to hurt him. And somebody said to me, the problem, pastor, is that he has a servant's job, but doesn't have a servant's heart. He has a servant's job, but doesn't have a servant's heart. And until he gets a servant's heart, he'll never understand that. And that was a good way of looking at it. Let me ask you, what do you leave in your wake? Redeemed lives or a body count? There are people who come to church that think it's to give them a platform for their ministry to shine. But I want to tell you, I know I've preached this so much, but I want to say it one more time. Spiritual gifts do not trump spiritual fruit. Spiritual gifts do not trump spiritual fruit. And one of the great sins of the charismatic movement, and sometimes even in the Pentecostal movement, is that we have elevated someone's gifts above someone's character. Well, it's not only going to be a review of attitude, it's going to be a review of authority. Have I lived in submission and obedience to God's word? I want to tell you, it, it, it's not an easy thing to be in complete authority to God's word. I'm not talking about having a difference of opinion with somebody where either could be right and either have a point. 
But I want to tell you, when you really stand for, for, for the word of God, and if you do it right, you're going to be like Ezekiel. You're going to be like Jeremiah. You're going to be like even John, the beloved in the New Testament, who were commanded to eat a scroll. And in their mouth, it tasted wonderful. But in their belly, it became bitter. And I think what that was about, in every instance, the Lord was saying, look, when the anointing's on you, when the anointing is on you, when you're in touch with me, it's going to be as smooth as butter. And you're going to say there's nothing like teaching and preaching. There's nothing like proclaiming the word of the Lord. But not everybody is going to like it. And you're going to have some bitter moments as well as some delicious moments. And you've got to be willing to accept the scroll and whatever it turns out producing in your life. Uh, so you've got to decide right now. I think, I think churches and pastors are going through real tests right now if we will decide that we believe in the authority of Scripture or do we not. I think that's the biggest test going on in our churches right now. I think pastors are under judgment more than churches are because they have an awesome responsibility of sharing and declaring the word of God. And sometimes they don't because of political fear or because of fear of persecution or fear of offending some group or some crowd. Pastors have tender hearts and pastors want to be loved. But what we're finding out is that sometimes the, the more important, well, all the time, the more important thing is, are you pleasing the Lord, not are you pleasing man? And churches are having to make that decision. And you know what? You have to make it too at your place of employment and, and in your neighborhood. What authority do you live by? But not only is it uh, a review of attitude and authority, it's also a review of ability. Now, I don't mean by that how much ability do you have. Because as I said, some of us are Swiss Army knives, some of us are butter knives. But the question is, have I been an effective steward of the gifts God has given me? Did I waste my life or did I spend my life, just kind of a break-even thing, or did I invest my life so that it produces a crop of 30-fold, 50-fold, 100-fold? Um, it's a measure, as I said, of quality, not quantity. Um, Mike and I may be standing nearby at judgment, and let's just say our works are in, are in gallons, and I'm standing there with a, um, uh, let's, uh, either way, let's, who do I want to be the bad guy? Well, let's go. The, well, I don't know. Both of them have problems. I don't guess it matters. Okay, I'm, I, let's say I'm standing there. No, let's say Mike's standing there with five gallons. I'm standing there. I've got a caravan of wagons, and I've got 75 gallons. Well, if the world looks at me, they're going to say, oh, Stephen's, he's going to get a bigger reward. He's got 75 gallons and Mike's only got five gallons. So it's a no brainer. Stephen gets the bigger reward. But when God judges us, he's not going to just ask how many gallons do we have? He's going to ask how much capacity did I give you? Now I may have produced 75 gallons, but if you really looked at my life, God was so gracious to me, I should have produced a thousand gallons. 
But you look at Mike's life and God sent him to places that were more difficult or circumstances were different. And Mike only produced five gallons, but God only gave him capacity for six. I want to tell you, I might have produced more, but he produced better. The question is, how much have I measured up to what God wanted me to do? There's a plan for every life, and that's how God will judge our abilities. And one final thing um, before we, again, we're letting the landing gear down now, is the word aspiration. In other words, part of our reward will not only be what we did, but what was in my heart to accomplish. You see, we all have to learn the art. See, following God's not a science, it's an art. And we have to learn the art of being led by the Spirit, not being led by a burden. You can have a burden for a lot of things, and you may pray for them, you may give to it, you may support them, but you can't do everything. Churches can't do everything. Pastors can't participate in everything. So you have to, even though something's on your heart, you have to decide what the Spirit is saying. And what that means is that there's going to be some things, you guys with me? There are going to be some things that you care very much about and you want to do. And God in his wisdom will not let you do that because it's not his plan for you. And we have to learn what is the spirit direction and what is our heart direction because God may not be directing us and we'll view it as a failure. We'll view it as a failure. There, there were things... Um, I do kind of a review. I don't want to become morbid or too introspective. But um, the last quarter of every year is spent reviewing the year and looking ahead and in special evaluation. And there, just a few months ago, I said, there are some things, Lord, I don't think I have enough years to do what I want to do. I was thinking of the land. I was thinking of other things. I said, I don't think I have enough time to do everything that I want to do. And I had to come to the realization that some of it was very good things. Some of it Corey will do. Some of it was something that God was very well pleased with, but it was not my responsibility. It was not my commission. And let me explain to you, David God never asked for a temple, but David, out of the expression of his heart, David, who was one of the most worshipful, thankful men who ever lived, he said, Lord, I want to build, I'm, I'm living here in this palace and I want to build a house for you. God said, David, I've never asked for that. And he said, I've never demanded that. He was putting it in perspective for David. God wasn't saying, oh, I don't want a temple. He was saying, I've never asked you to do that. He said, and I'm not going to let you do it. God said, it'll happen, but I'm not going to let you do it because you've been a man of war. I don't think God was saying that war was evil. I think he was saying that David's agenda was war. David had to subdue kingdoms, not build temples. He said, but I will let your son do it. I'll let Solomon do it. And he said this to David. He said, but it was good that this was in your heart. I am pleased that you wanted to do it. And don't despair because you didn't get to do it.
understand that the intent of your heart is enough for me. I just have other plans. And loved ones, I've come to believe there are things that the intent of my heart is right. I've come to believe that me wanting to do it is right. And there are things I can do to help, but that's not the plan of God for me to do. You understand? And we all have to face some things like that. But I believe, I believe with all of my heart that many of heaven's treasures will be awarded to people who thought they failed. Awarded to people who thought they failed because they laid a foundation that nobody saw as a foundation. David paid for the temple, but he didn't get to build it. And loved ones, don't feel like your life has been a failure just because all of your dreams haven't come to pass. It may be that it wasn't God's will for you to do it the way you thought it, you wanted it done, but God is so pleased with you. Somewhere along the line, we've got to get in our heads the realization that God's not mad with us. It's going to be a place of review. Secondly, it's going to be a place of reward. Look what the closing verses of the New Testament say. Revelation 22, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. You, every one of us has a reward. And when Jesus comes back, whenever this judgment is, he has his reward and he's going to set everything right. Isn't it good to know that he's going to set everything right? On that day, not only will he be vindicated, you will be vindicated. Uh, we'll talk about the crowns next week. It's, and here's, let me give you one little downer. It's a place of review, a place of reward, and it could be a place of regret. Doesn't have to be, but it can be. He said, he shall suffer loss, though he himself shall be saved, but as one jumping through a wall of flames. Loved ones, I think when we see him, We'll, we shall be amazed that we loved him so little, that we served him so poorly. And I don't mean by that, that, oh, you ought to be ashamed of the way you're serving the Lord. No, I believe you can love the Lord with all of your strength and with all of your heart, with all of your mind. And, and I believe that when we see him, we will understand he was worth so much more, worth so much more. That's not a statement of you ought to do better. That's a statement that says, oh, when we see him, when we see him. It will be absolutely um, unbelievable. You know, I, I chuckle every time I start reading the Bible over each year when God presented Eve. You know, Adam said, I found no, no one suitable for me. And when God made Eve and presented Eve to him, uh, the, King, the King James says something like, this is it. This is it. But it's really an explanation. It's... Sort of like he looked at her and said, oh, wow. When we see Jesus, it will be a wow moment. It will be a moment of reality. It's going to be a place of regret only if we see. I told you that my goal for the last few years, I'm asking the Lord, I know my sins are forgiven, but the baggage I carry, the attitudes that I carry that aren't right, the motives that are not pure, Lord, I want to deal with as many of them on this side 
so I don't have to deal with them there. And I want to tell you something. He has answered that prayer far more than I thought he would. I mean, he, he's, it's like my life right now is realization, repentance, a party, and, and then conviction again. But I want to tell you, I do feel that things are falling off. I feel like things are getting resolved. And that's a good place to be. Okay, you're tired, so I'm going to let you go in a minute. I want to close with this. When we stand there, what are some of the surprises that we're likely to encounter? Now, I don't think any of these are surprises that you'll say today, oh, I didn't know that. I think all of these things we know, but I want us to really know them. Now, to us, know means to recognize something as a fact. But some of the words translated know in the Bible have an incredible depth to them that reflect intimacy and a special knowledge, knowledge that's not to be shared with anyone. See, when, whenever um, Paul talked about his desperation to be everything he could be for Christ and, and to serve him to the best of his ability, he said, I have changed the way I think and the way I live. Why? That I may know Christ, know him. He says, I want to know him. The, the, uh, another place, in the Old Testament, especially in King James Version, you know, Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she bore a son. That doesn't mean they went out and ate, you know, pineapple and talked about her college days. It means that he came into a relationship with her that was more intimate than anything he had known. And by the way, was not to be shared with anyone else. And what I'm saying is when we stand before the Lord, we're going to know him more clearly than we've ever known him before. I'm not talking about some spiritual sex. I'm talking about our hearts being blended with him. We, beloved, now we are the sons of God, but it does not yet appear what we're going to be. We're, we're, We're only the first steps right now. He says, but we know that when Christ shall appear, we shall be like him. Why? Because we'll see him just as he is. When we see him, our utter existence will change. I like what C.S. Lewis said. He said, we don't understand when we get frustrated dealing with people. We need to understand that we are dealing with people who, when they stand in the presence of the Lord, will become creatures so magnificent that if we were to see them in their fullness now, we would be tempted to fall down and worship them. I think we might be surprised at how perfectly and completely the goodness and severity of God is balanced. There are some miserable Christians that all they see is the severity of God. There are some naive Christians that all they can see is the goodness of God. And they may be prophets, they may be pastors, they may be, all of us fall into the trap if we're not careful of either seeing God as severity or seeing God just as goodness. The Bible says Jesus was full of grace and truth. He always knew what the truth was, but he always knew how to administer grace. Oh, I wish we could learn that. We'll be surprised at how beautifully balanced the goodness and severity of God is. 
we will be surprised, I think, at the justice of God. We have a tendency to question God's justice. If God loved me, why would he do this? If God was a good God, why would he allow that? You know, the big claim among the atheists, and there seems to be a surge of atheism today, and it is, if there was a God, why would he make a world where children are deformed and where there are incurable diseases? And they, they say, we reject God because if that's the way God is, I wouldn't serve him anyway. But see, the gospel teaches us plainly that everything God made was good until we fell. We are responsible as a race for everything that's broken in this world. And God is responsible for redemption. I think that we might be surprised at the judgment of God or, or justice of God, but I think we might also be surprised at how God really sees things. Remember when Samson was sent to anoint the new king, it was going to be one of the sons of Jesse, Eliab walked out and Solomon, or excuse me, Samuel said, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. And God said, no, this is not this one. This is not the one I've chosen. He said, understand this, man looks on the outward appearance, but I look on the heart. God says, I look and evaluate a person differently than you do. God chastised Israel for their sacrifices and their feasts. Why would he do that when he's the one that gave them the sacrifices and the feasts? Isaiah 1, 11 through 15 explains it. They had let it just become ritual. And God said, you think you're doing right, but I see your hearts. He said, in the days of Jesus, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. That wasn't God saying, if you value something, I hate it. He was saying, your tendency is to value things that have no value in my sight. I realize that this next illustration may not register with you because I don't know if anybody writes checks anymore. But I heard Adrian Rogers say one time about offerings. He says, we, we want to obey God with our offerings. He said, because God doesn't look so much at the amount of the check as much as he does the balance on the stub. He said, a giving heart is determined not by what you give, but by what you have left. And I thought, boy, that's, uh, that's true. The fourth and final thing is we might be surprised at what really touches the heart of God. I love the way Jesus defended Mary of Bethany. And he was speaking to the best of the best. He said, you leave her alone. She has done what she could. And wherever the gospel is preached, the story of her act of love will be told. I believe the day is coming when we will see Jesus defend those who have been maligned. You say, I've been done wrong. I've been treated wrong. I've been failed by the church. Let me tell you something, we all have. There's probably not a pastor alive that doesn't resent something his denomination did or said or position they took. There's probably not a church member alive that hasn't been let down in a moment of need either by their class or their pastor or by their elders. Listen, if, 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 we, wanna, if we want to 
go down a path because we've been let down, then nobody will be left standing because we've all been hurt. I'm not excusing it. I'm just saying it's something we've got to deal with. We've all been hurt. We've all been let down. But the day is coming when if we have been done wrong, we will be vindicated. We will be vindicated. Not only is God's name going to be vindicated, but we will be vindicated. So what do we want today? Today we're asking God for clarification. God, help me to see better so that I can make a right choice. Help me to see my hurts better. Help me to see my disappointments better. Help me to see my ministry better because I want to make a good choice. I want to make a choice like Jesus made. I want to make a choice like Moses made. I want to understand that when I see things from your perspective, then this present time makes a lot more sense. Now I'm going to ask our ministry teams to come forward here and in Brown Chapel. Folks are going to be ready to pray with you. If, um, if you're watching online, there'll be a number that comes up on the screen and you can, uh, you can call in there for prayer as well. If anyone does not know Jesus, I encourage you to go to one of these altar teams. Let them pray with you. But there are others of you, you may feel sick, you may have problems, you just need somebody to pray for you about a need. They're here to pray for you as well. But some of us might be in a situation where we just say, Lord, I don't need to be prayed for as much as I need to just pray. You might want to come and find a place down here in the front altar area where you just say, Lord, I want to see differently. Because if I can see differently, I can live differently. And if I can live differently, I, I know that the judgment seat of Christ will be a place of reward. And it'll be a place of restoration. Oh, how he wants to heal you. He wants to heal you so much. The shame, remember, the sorrow, the sadness. That's not your legacy. That's not your testimony. Help us, Father, in Jesus' name.